Good morning. My name is Ron. I'm one of the elders here at Pillar. I haven't seen you for a while. We've been in the States for six weeks. As a teacher, we get two months off, a lot like you guys in the military, uh, and that's uh, always good. But the bad news is I have to go back to work next week, so I only have one week left. Am I creating any sympathy at this point? None? Well, we're going to continue our study in the book of James, and we're in James chapter 4, if you want to get started uh, moving there. But in the last couple months, we focused in on this book, this book of practical wisdom. In fact, the, the series title overall is, Those Who Have Been Truly Rescued by Christ Will Live Out Faith Practically in Everyday Lives. The book of James is a very practical book in the sense that it gives us a lot of commands, a lot of practical wisdom, and today is no different. What we're going to look at today, uh, the title of the sermon we're going to look at is called The Cause and Cure for Spiritual Adultery. How's that? Uh, Cause and Cure for Spiritual uh, Adultery. But I want to begin with a profile of a company, of a biotech company you perhaps have heard about sometime in the last couple years. The title is Theranos. How many of you have heard of the company Theranos? couple of you. It's a biotech company that had this very simple premise. If we can take one tiny drop of blood, we can run it through a battery of tests, and we can give all kinds of information for the patient. We can test for abnormalities, diseases, impurities, high cholesterol, STDs. We can do everything. Instead of the, the usual venipuncture that we would do and draw vials and vials of blood, Theranos promises one tiny drop. In fact, their tagline is this, one tiny drop changes everything. They draw it into what they trademarked, these uh, nano containers, and they put the drop of blood in there. They have a proprietary machine called a micro lab, or the Edison, and the blood would go in there. It would run this whole gamut of tests, and the patient would be able to see a full set of information. Isn't that great? Elizabeth Holmes is the very charismatic, young, attractive, bright, persuasive CEO and founder. She was the darling of Silicon Valley for years on countless magazine covers, um, not only because she's a female CEO, but she's the only Silicon CEO who's also the founder. She's very popular, had friends in high places, friends with Obama, Joe Biden, she had people invest great deals of money into Theranos, moving Theranos to a $9 billion company. Even General Mattis was one of the contributors. I think he was an Air Force general. (laughs) Again, I'm alienating my audience here. Uh, All of these people loved Elizabeth Holmes, loved the promise of Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes was often called the next Steve Jobs again and again. She started to wear black turtlenecks like Steve Jobs, and she looked like Steve Jobs. She acted like Steve Jobs. She was obsessed with Steve Jobs, and everybody loved her because one tiny drop changes everything. What a great promise for our company. The only problem is none of it is true. Elizabeth Holmes lied. 
This was a company that while she may have had the vision to have one tiny drop change everything, it didn't work. The Edisons, the micro labs, never worked. General Mattis was involved because he pictured these little micro labs on the back of Jeeps on the war field to have soldiers uh, pinprick to see any problems on the battlefield. But everybody was deceived by Elizabeth Holmes. Eventually, Wall Street Journal did an expose, uncovered it all, till finally last year, Theranos went, the value went below zero. They owed more than they own. And both Elizabeth Holmes and the president of the company were convicted or were charged with uh, conspiracy and fraud. Their actual trial is next summer for their punishment. Elizabeth Holmes may end up spending 40 years in jail for her uh, lying on this. It seems weird that we're starting off with this very strange company, but uh, it, it became a bestseller book called Bad Blood, and HBO just released a documentary on it called The Inventor. Both of them, excellent. Well, here's our point. If in the final days of Theranos, after the Wall Street Journal expose comes out, in those final days, if I told you, you know, there's this company Theranos and I'm gonna take my TSP savings and invest in Theranos, you would or you should tell me you're crazy. Theranos is failing company. Elizabeth Holmes is a liar. Why would you do that? But I would give you a retort here. I would say, but it's gonna be the next Apple. And you would say, but it's not real. And I would say, but it's a great idea. Think of all the people it would help. You would say, but it's not real. It promises so much. I mean, one tiny drop, it changes everything. You would say, it's not real. It would be foolish to invest in a company that is on its way downward. Financially, we know that that makes sense. A company that's ready to fail and ready to have criminal investigations toward it, it would be foolish to put our money into. We know that. But we don't know that in our spiritual lives, though. Oftentimes, we like to invest our spiritual lives into something that we know is failing. We have been told it's failing, but yet that doesn't stop us, does it? We still want to invest our lives in something that is failing. And James is going to show us that the something that is failing is the world and the worldliness. We are going to take what is so important to us, our love, our affection, our attitude, our time, and we're going to invest it into a failing company called the world. Now, in my uh, section four, uh, chapter four of the Bible, right above it, the heading, the non-biblical text, just the editor's heading, it says, warning against worldliness. And that is what we're gonna look at today. James pastors us in the dangers of investing our life, our love, our affections in the world as it soon will be all gone. It'll disappear like Theranos. And we would still want to be cautious about what we invest our time into. We, even as Christians, invest into the world. And James will tell us we commit spiritual adultery. So the main idea that we'll look at, the thesis statement coming from an English teacher here. The thesis statement of the sermon is this. Through Jesus, we joyfully turn our allegiance, friendship, and affection away from the world and toward God, our creator. That will be what we're gonna look at today. So to this end, let's pray. Father God, we ask for your work today, Lord. Pray that you would use your text, use my words, use our time in this 
service to do your work. Lord, draw us close to you because we know that you would draw close to us, Lord. I pray that you would open ears, guard my tongue, help us to see you clearer. Amen. Let's read chapter four, and we're going to split this section into two. So we'll read four, verse four through six. Let me get this on the text here. It starts off, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we look here, he calls us, you adulterous people. This is new, because up until this point, James has told us things like brothers, beloved, and now we switch. As soon as we start talking about worldliness, we're now adulterous people. There is a harsh change here that James refers to us. And he says that friendship with the world is enmity, is hatred, is becoming, setting ourselves up as an enemy to God. Friendship with the world is an enemy to God. Now, past definitions of worldliness, at least growing up, I, I became a Christian in the late 80s, uh, like a lot of you. <laughs> that laugh was too much. Uh, and and here, here's the definition of what how you can avoid the world, right? I mean, this is in Christian circles today, is don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't see rated R movies, and this is a weird one, don't play cards, some of, some of your circles may have don't play cards. It wasn't in my circle, but I worked at a Christian bookstore in college, and the family who owned it would talk about cards are of the devil. And I'm like, well, what do you guys gamble with then? Uh, so, uh, so those are kind of the, the set definition of what the world is. If you avoid those things, you could probably add a few more in, but if you avoid those things, you're going to be okay. If you do those things, you're a friend of the world. Well, that is not what worldliness is. That is perhaps what legalism is, but it is certainly not what worldly-ism, worldliness is in James's mind. So I, I'm stealing a definition of worldliness from a, a pastor in Wisconsin, Mike Bullmore, and he says this, worldliness is being ruled by passions towards something other than God. It's a very broad and wide definition of what worldliness could be. Worldliness is being ruled by passions towards something other than God. And this is why we have this concept of adulterers. If James just wanted us to avoid dancing, he would not necessarily call us adulterers. But he associates the idea of passion towards something other than God with adultery. Because when we look at what a, a earthly adultery is, it is taking what is due your spouse, affection, time, love, uh, physical touch, we take all of those and we give it to somebody else. That's what makes us an earthly adulterer. James is taking that same metaphor and using it for the world. When we take what we're passionate about and move it from God to anything else that could be dancing, drinking, smoking, cards, uh, it could be any of those things, but it could be so much more. It could be so many good things as well. He uses adulterous people because that is a serious charge. If I were to call you an adulterer, 
you, you, that would wake you up, right? In the same way, James is trying to wake us up because we are taking our God-given passions instead of to our creator where they belong and putting them somewhere else. Just like a husband taking his, his uh, affections that should rest with his wife and giving them to another woman. In the same way, that's what's happening. What we're moving them to, though, are usually good things. So most of these passions that worldliness seems to cover is passions of anything other than God. And so we look at what it could be. These are all good things. Work, right? Work, we could, we could look at and say that our passion for work defines us. Work is a good thing. We could say money, sports, politics, power and prestige, just stuff, material stuff, all of those things. There's nothing inherently wrong in any of those. But when we take our passions away from God and put them onto politics and start to look at president races, presidential races as our hope in the world, dear God in heaven above, if that's you. Uh, but if we put all of our hope and passion away from God and into a presidential candidate, we are in the world, not of where the world in that case and of the world. When we put all of our attention into our portfolio, our stock portfolio, or whether it's just our time at work, when all of our affection goes toward anything other than God as the main thing, that something, even if it's a good thing, becomes a God thing, and that's a bad thing. The world is going to fade away, and we would be fools to invest our time and attention and give the best that we have in our hearts that should belong to the creator, we would be fools to give it away to something that's going to be destroyed and end. We know that as Christians. We know that work is not where uh, our hope is. We know that money is not where our hope is or sports or any of those areas, but yet we still do it. We still invest money in the Theranos foolishness because that's who we are. We are spiritual adulterers. And the text says that God is jealous over us. Now, jealousy seems like a bad thing, but if my wife, Christy, walked in here holding some other guy's hand, you know, walking in, I, I would be rightfully jealous. And I'd start to fight a little bit, uh, right? I, I would be right, rightfully so, because that belongs to me. I mean, not Christy, but that attention belongs to me, and I would be jealous for that. In the same way, God is jealous because you are whoring away your passions for something that is so much less than him. And then there's a verse of hope in here in verse six. God knows we're adulterers. He knows we're giving away the best of us away from the creator and into things that are failing. And he has this line of hope for us, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. This is your tattoo verse right here. He gives more grace. Whatever we end up doing, God knows this. And if we trust him, he gives more grace, which gives us hope because all of us, James is talking to today, all of us, Christian, non-Christian alike. Well, James goes on in, this, in the second section of uh, our passage today. James is a book of wisdom. There are a lot of practical commands here. They're called imperatives. And we, we look at imperatives even in our English language. These are these just direct commands. So if you told me how to get somewhere direction-wise, you would say, go straight, turn left, stop at the red house. Just like that. You would give me these very clear commands 
And I would appreciate it because it's very crisp and I like that. And James is filled with them. It's often the Proverbs of the New Testament of sorts. And we like these very clear commands. We're, in the past sermons, we, were, we heard about tame your tongue, visit our orphans and widows, be slow to speak, slow to anger, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, show no partiality. We have all these direct commands. Well, in this next couple of verses, we have 10, 10 more. I preached this passage, no joking, 25 years ago when I was a youth pastor. I know, stop it, I look good. Uh, 25 years ago, I preached the same passage and I saved all my notes from that time. So I have a whole file of all of these notes and I pulled out that passage when I was studying for today. I mean, it's terrible. It is terrible. And in it, I was making this big point. It's like, the 10 commandments are in the New Testament right here. And now I realize like everybody says that. So I thought I was so clever, but uh, contrary to that, I'm not. But here we we really have 10 commandments that James gives us in these two verses, 10 imperatives, but they're different than the other ones about visiting orphans and widows. They're different in this area. They're more broad and they they are more difficult to follow. So let's take a look at what they are here. We're in 4.7 and we'll go to 4.10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to, hold on a second, let me, yeah. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There's 10 things here, and if you were to look at these, you should be doing all 10. But we're not doing all 10 because of the lure of our attention to worldliness. So uh, if we're spiritual adulterers because of our friendship with the world, here's the cure for spiritual adultery. These 10 commands, these very broad commands that we're looking at, they're not as specific as the other ones. But we're told to draw near. These 10, especially that one, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is an invitation to know the God of the universe. And we would be fools to miss it. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Does this describe you? Could you say with all honesty that you are near God today? You are continually drawing near to God? Probably not. But do you have that longing for a closeness with God? Do you have a longing for this to be true in your life? I do. And I hope it is true uh, for you as well. I don't follow these 10 but I certainly want to follow these 10 and look for ways to do this. But yet, once again, I take my God-given passions and I delight myself with the world. Whatever the world is in this case, I delight myself with them. Well, C.S. Lewis has a very famous quotation that I always make fun of preachers using this quotation because it is so overused. But I'm gonna use it because it's so good. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this. It's a very famous quote. I know you've heard it before. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, 
because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This is James right here, half-hearted. James calls us double-minded or two-faced. We, we say we're in love with God, but yet we really mess around with the world. And C.S. Lewis says, you messing around with the world is like a kid playing with mud pies in a slum with dung and gross things and thinking you're happy when infinite joy is right there. You could be playing at the foot of the cresting waves. You have no idea the infinite joy waiting for you, but you're just ignorantly playing with the dung. Uh, This is what James is saying to us, is that we are far too easily pleased with areas in our life and our passions we think we're so passionate about, but it's not about God. And so we have, to, we have to be forced to look at ourselves. What's keeping us from drawing near to God? We're told that, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Could be our sin, our shame, our pride, our time, maybe our stuff. We have too much stuff. We are so focused on pursuing the world that we avoid Christ. You just can't have it both ways. He says that we're double-minded. He, earlier in the book, he talks about looking at a mirror and then forgetting what you look like. This is using that same dichotomy, is that you can't have the world and God too. So we look at following rules or money or politics or sports, family, even children's successes. Are we allowing those things to define us and establish who we are and give us the ultimate worth. I mean, we, all of those things, again, are good. And I added family in there this time because family is a good thing. I should love my kids. I should want for their great success. But is my identity wrapped up only in their success? Meet a lot of people who are really busy in our community. They, they come to church, perhaps. They don't have time for missional community or, or even meeting with Christians. But then they spend an entire Saturday watching eight-year-olds kick a ball around a field for eight hours. That has to say, where is your worth coming from? And I'm not against children's sports. Let me make sure we're clear on that. But it's just, what are we allowing to define who we are? If I were to ask you that weird question, who are you? How would you answer that after your name? How would you answer that? And so the idea should be, we are a child of God, a rescued and redeemed sinner who still is trying to draw near to God, as opposed to what your rank is, what your career is, how many kids you have, how smart your kids are. I know your kids are the smartest. I know they are. They're the best looking kids and they're the most athletic. I know. Um, I've taught some of them, Kento. Uh, I know that's true. But is that where our worth is every day? And so if you want to test as to where, where you, we're putting our eggs in any basket is take something away from those areas of your life. I mean, we all have money. We all have a job. We all have family to some degree. I mean, size of family differs. But we all have these investments and we all take something away. And how does that make you feel? When your guy loses an election, how do you feel the next day? When the stock market has a bad week like it did last week, how does that make anything? How does that change your Monday morning? When your team loses because some 20-year-old missed a ball, does that change your mood, your life, your attitude on Monday morning? Right there, taking it away will show you where your passion and worth is. God is telling us that you are a spiritual adulterer 
if passions are in anything other than Christ, if your worth is in anything other than Jesus. James goes on and tells us, we are to mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's kind of a sad phrase. But we, we, it, this is not saying walk around and being a morose Christian, just walking with, you know, a sackcloth or just wearing beige all the time or something. It is not that. But rather, James is telling us, take our adultery seriously. If you cheat on your wife and you laugh it off, you would be a real dirtbag husband. Well, this is what we are doing with our spiritual adultery. We give all our time to the stock market. We give all our time to politics and we laugh about it. Oh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really addicted to watching uh, news, political news, and you laugh about it. No, it is not a laughing matter. Your spiritual adultery needs to be mourned. After you cheat, you don't laugh it off. You mourn and weep. And then you run back into the arms of those whom you've offended. And so that's what James is saying here. Well, here are some practical application that you can do. One, I already wanted you to think about where your passion is. Where are you already leaning to give your life to? But here's, the, here's another application. What stirs your affections for God? How do we stir that in our hearts that something around us stirs us that we, we want to worship God? And the other question is the same. What dulls them? What robs the joy of your affection for God? Something does. Something there dulls it. Something there gives it life and stirs it up. Let's look at dulling our affection toward God. It could be sleep or lack of sleep. It could be your media consumption, movies, TV, just being on your phone. It dulls your affection to Christ. It could be lack of community. You come to church and you run out and think you're good but you know that that's something missing. I know all of these things at some time in my life were the dulling effect for, for my affections to God. Christy and I were not connected to a community for a couple of years, and I just didn't really care about God. I was still a Christian, but I didn't really have this, any kind of passion for it. I was passionate about a lot of other things, not for that. Media consumption. This is embarrassing, but for years, and I'm talking 10 years, I was an avid subscriber to Entertainment Weekly. And Saturday, don't laugh, because I will crush you at Trivial Pursuit, pink, uh, the pink category, crush you, I'm telling you. Uh, every Saturday morning, I would spend two hours just consuming this magazine every week. I mean, I just loved everything about movies and music. I love it. And then one, time, one day, it just was like, I don't want this anymore. It is, there's nothing necessarily sinful in it, but I just, it's giving my attention to something that's not God. Another area that dulls it for me, and again, I, I hesitate saying this because it, it becomes a list of rules and that's not what I'm to do here, but I just avoid rated R movies. I don't think rated R movies are wrong. I don't think they're wrong for you. Watch them. In fact, right now, pull out your phone and watch a rated R movie. I don't care. Uh, but for me, don't really do that. For me, uh, I just think that rated R movies, it interferes with my mind trying to be pure uh, in a lot of ways, and, and men in particular, I think you can follow what I'm saying here, uh, is that I just chose that I don't want to watch rated R movies. I don't, I don't follow it fully. I mean, there are some movies that I do watch and, and you could come up later and you're gonna tell me, what about, what about? 
it's just, it's just a choice that I made. I know that that dulls my affections for Christ, so I cut it out. Think about what you could easily cut out because it dulls your affection for Christ. I sit across the table with many men as we talk about pornography. I can't tell you the conversations I have. And then when we talk about media, Game of Thrones, da, 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 da. You fool. It's right there. The answer is right there in front of you. Stop it. But again, I'm not being legalistic on that, even though it may sound it. But just for you, find out what dulls you and stop doing it. The other side, it's the one that I really like, is what stirs your affections for Christ? What is it that you're doing that you just feel something close? You feel passions toward Christ. Uh, Eric Liddell, the runner they made Chariots of Fire about, he has this just excellent quote. He said, God made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. God made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Eric Liddell gets it. He understands that that stirs his affections toward God. And uh, John Ransom up here, I think he can't get through a sermon without talking about a run or something. I think he's showing off a little bit, but uh, <laughs> I sit in the audience and go, I think I should run. <laughs> nah. Uh, and, and so what is it for you that you feel his pleasure in running? It could be discussions, you know, having theological discussions. Next week, a few of us, about a dozen of us or so are getting together to talk through systematic theology by Grudem. If you want to join us, join us. But for me, that's something that excites me. I, it stirs my affections for Christ. We're in a great missional community. I meet with two guys uh, almost every week. Uh, Andrew Dibble and Jeff Carr, and the three of us talk about important things to us. That stirs my affections for Christ. When I'm walking back to the car from that lunch, I feel closer to Jesus than I did when I was walking in. What stirs your affections? Is it meeting with people? Is it having coffee? Is it sleeping? Is it having uh, a, a certain book time to read, getting up early or staying up late to read? What is it? You know what it is, and do more of that. One of the things that you would know about me if we're friends at all is that our family loves Akuma. Did you know that? We go to Akuma a lot. In fact, we're going tomorrow, so uh, we'll be there. But there, for me, Akuma stirs my affections for Jesus in a way that nothing else has. And I know that Akuma is nothing fancy, but there is a place in Akuma facing the South Beach under a tree that every single time I go there, almost every morning, I take my chair, my coffee, and my Bible and sit under this tree facing uh, the South Side Beach. And God has done good work in my heart in that chair. I look forward to that time. It's, we've gone when it was just Christy and me and then when Hudson joined us and then when Josiah joined us. And then under that tree, Somehow, God told me that grace will be coming to us someday. And I just remember that very clearly. So we love Akuma. Just being in that area stirs my affections for Christ. It might do the opposite for you because it's terrible food. But uh, find the idea what stirs your affections. Because our joy and God's glory are linked so closely, and we need to keep that in mind. God does not want us to be morose Christians walking around heavy-hearted, but rather God wants us to have great delight in what, who he made us to be and how we can glorify him. John Piper, of course, said this best. He's made a career on this one sentence when he talked about the link. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. 
are you satisfied with God? If we're to be true, we would, some of us would say, no, we are not satisfied with God. We're satisfied in our money and in our job and in our family, but we're not satisfied in him. We are adulterers indeed, but we have Jesus. When we look at this list of, of commands, these 10 commands, this may be discouraging to us because I can't do this. Submit myself to God, resist the devil, draw near to, I can't do this. But Jesus did. In fact, Jesus did all of these. If you can admit today that those 10, you have failed on those 10, good. That's a starting point. Because you know who hasn't failed on these 10? Jesus. Jesus has done all of this perfectly on our behalf. Jesus has lived a sinful life. He submitted to God. Jesus resisted the devil. Jesus drew near to God. Jesus cleansed his hands and purified his heart. Jesus was wretched and mourned and wept. Jesus turned his laughter into mourning. And Jesus humbled himself before God. That is the gospel and that is good news. Because go back to Theranos here. It is true. One tiny drop changes everything. Jesus lived a perfect life for us. He was tried in an unjust Roman system, crucified, and his shed blood pays for our sin. So yes, one Theranos got this part right. One tiny drop does change everything. Is that I am not bound to rules in order to make myself right before God. I'm not bound by that. Jesus lived a perfect life, died a death so that I could stand before God perfectly submitted to God, resisting the devil, drew near to God, cleansing my hands. It's not me who does it, but Jesus does it on my behalf. And Christian, you have this truth for you as well. Run from the world and back to your father, your creator, your rescuing king. He will take you. He has created your passions and and longs to be with you and close to you. Cling to him. His perfection is our perfection. And that should give us rejoicing even in the darkest of moments of our failure. And if you're not a Christian today, this is a truth for you as well. We don't need to be perfect like the, the earlier list of the don'ts to avoid the world, that's all not true. Christianity is not a set of rules to follow before you can make yourself right and clean yourself up before God. It's okay not to be okay. God breaks through your sin and rescues you. If you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It doesn't say anything about dancing or card playing. It just says confessing and believing. And so non-Christian, if you feel like you are far from God, one tiny drop changes everything. Well, as we end here, imagine what our church would be like if we really believed this. If we really not only sought our God-given passions for God, the creator, but rather than following rules about what Christians can and can't do, we turned all of our passions, everything we're passionate about toward Christ. Imagine if we live this way, that we try to help each other and fight for each other's joy and point to, each, point to God and help each other look that way. Matt Chandler says that we are refined best in the furnace of community. We are refined best in the furnace of community. You hear every single week at Pillar about missional communities and fight clubs 
If you're not in one of those, you are missing out. Coming to church and leaving church, you, it's not doing much. You, we have to live life with one another so that we can continue to point each other toward Christ. Because you cannot submit to God, draw near to God, resist the devil all on your own. We need each other and we need each other desperately. So whether you're brand new here and you have three more years to enjoy community with other believers to point each other to Christ, great. If you are PCSing next month, great. Both of you have time here to invest so that we can point each other to Christ so that we are no longer filled with the passions of the world, but rather we are filled with the passions of Christ. And may Pillar Okinawa be a place that we can lock arms one with another to fight our adulterous affairs with the world and look toward the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask for just this, Lord. We ask that you would be good to us, Lord. Help us to see the need for community. Help us to see the need for you and your work in our lives, Lord. Give us passion that would make us lovers of you and less of the world. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.